So I'm still uh, continuing then the theme of evangelism, and uh, my suggestion is that we need to go back to a pre-Finney way. We we can do it in a modern way, but uh, essentially we have to go back behind Finney and uh, purify the church from some of these things that are not changing nations, they're not not really working, they don't have as much power as you might think, although they seem to have a lot of power because they produce large numbers of people professing things, but uh, in the end they don't have the power that they seem to have. The great mistake, I would say, there are many mistakes, but uh, one of the great mistakes is you must not preach by attacking the will. It's not a right way to preach. But you, you preach, when you're preaching, you, you go through the mind. You, you don't begin with the will. You begin with the mind. There's a, a little bit of teaching. I'm, I'm not very fond of the word teaching because uh, it's too intellectual a word for me. I don't like it. But, uh, but still, although I don't like that word very much, we have to use it. I can't think of another one to use. You have to go through the, the content and the teaching. You have to expound the scriptures. You're not attacking the will directly. But then you do, you, you're preaching in a way that stirs the heart. You're not just preaching to the... In, you begin with the intellect, but you're not really just preaching intellectual content. You are preaching to the whole man. You're preaching to the feelings. You are, people are moved. And, and the will, well, it sort of comes into it. it finally, you, you change people's lives. But um, you're not attacking the will directly. You, you're coming with information. You're coming with the content of Scripture. You're being given what to say by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you're led to speak differently. But it is, you're saying something definite. There's content there. And you are not just getting people to make a decision. I sometimes feel the biggest problem of recent centuries is the whole notion of marketing. Um, you see, our world is a marketing world, isn't it? We, we sell our products, and we often do so dishonestly. We, we use any kind of trick to, to get someone to buy our product. We often, it's often deceitful. You don't tell the truth about your, your product. You, your only concern is to, is to get the thing sold. And I can't help feeling that uh, we're, we're in such a marketing world that there's a lot of that in the church. We're, we're marketing our church. We put things on websites. We do anything to get people to come. We flatter them. We'll, we'll have counselling classes or we'll, we'll have a school. It's all to attract the people. I, I can't help feeling there's a bit of a marketing atmosphere there. And it's not there in the New Testament, is it? There's nothing like that in the New Testament. You don't get uh, people uh, going after Uh, people doing anything just to get them to come along. You do not get that in Scripture. On the contrary, in Scripture, you get the opposite. It says in Acts chapter 5, no one dared join them. Remember that verse? And the the last thing in the world uh, you ever find anybody uh, doing in the New Testament is trying to persuade people to join church. You you don't get that in the New Testament. You get people being thrown out of the churches in the New Testament, deliver him unto Satan. If he's living that kind of life, remove him. You get people being thrown out of the churches. You never get anything, as it were, trying to pressurize people to come to church. You want people to come to Christ, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you do it by describing their need and presenting the Lord Jesus as the answer. You, you, deal, you deal with them where they are and uh, you believe you trust in the Holy Spirit to, to save them and change them and meet their needs and uh, you want God to uh, make bare his mighty arm and be with you in the preaching. And if they get saved, you want them coming into the fellowship. But, but 
you're not just trying to persuade them to come to church. Um, if, if anything, it's the other way around. The, the church is, is a, a company of, of people who, who are the people of God. You don't bring anybody into the church. They are God's people um, and so on. Although I sometimes wonder whether we make a mistake even calling our Sunday meetings church. Um, when you are preaching in, in Sunday morning services, I think we, we should remember that amongst other things, we are a public meeting. I don't know that we're just the church. There's all sorts of people that might come for various reasons. We are a public meeting. I don't know that it's only a gathering of the church. Um, we're a preaching center. We're a center where, for one reason, other people come because maybe because of tradition or maybe because uh, they feel there's some sort of answer there. And... Um, and they'll come, and we must, we must not do things that make a church. I, I hadn't planned to say this, but I feel led to say it. We mustn't make our church too much of a family. Um, you see, you get churches that really want to stress community. I referred to you the other day to churches that like to call themselves such and such community church. Come, you'll get fellowship, you'll get friendship here. We're a community, something for the children. And it's, it's, it's like a kind of family atmosphere. And people will use that word. They'll say, we're, we're a family, they'll say. And that's true, except that we are not an earthly family. Our pastor's not our papa, and we're, we're not brothers and sisters in, in, in an earthly way. We're a family because God is our father, and we're brothers because we all have God as our father. It's a spiritual family. Don't, don't make the family model too worldly or too earthly. And um, you, you get certain churches. I, I think of a church in, in Cape Town that I know. Some of you would know it. Uh, I think of churches which are so friendly among each other that they're hard to join. You go into that church, everybody knows each other and loves each other, and you feel an outsider. Uh, so, so far from being uh, easy to hear the gospel, actually you, you, you feel you can't get in this kind of close-knit community. And I, I spend a lot of time in Kenya. This is a, a Kenyan thing, but I think it might be worth my mentioning. I spend a lot of time in Kenya trying to persuade churches. I, I don't succeed. I'm a total failure in this. But I spend a lot of time in Kenya trying to persuade churches not to greet visitors. Um, for this reason, that if you make too big a fuss of visitors, you can't get anybody that wants to creep in and just listen to what you're saying without being fussed over. And, um, I mean, African people love visitors, and, and someone comes up, who are you? Put, stand up. Where do you come from? Tell us your name. Are you saved? You're not saved? Well, you've come from the right place this morning. We'll get you saved before you go. And they make such a fuss of the guy. If I was him, I'd never come again. <laughs> But Kenyans do it all the time. They, they love visitors so much. And they'll fast with them. I, I was in Nairobi City Hall once, some years back, and uh, right in the center of town, next door to the parliament and the high court, and, uh, and uh, we had a couple came in. They were, they were tourists from Malaysia, a Malaysian couple. And um, they'd just been wandering around town, staying in some hotel, and they heard the singing. Uh, and they'll wonder what these Kenyans do when they, in these buildings. So they came inside just out of curiosity as tourists. And the young guy, there was just a young Kenyan guy leading the service, and he <coughs> was delighted to see some visitors. He said, oh, so, so nice to have you. Come, come forward, come, come, and, come, and, come and sing us one of your, uh, one of your Malaysian songs. <laughs> now, come sing us a, a, they weren't even saved. The, the guy didn't realize they weren't saved. So they looked at each other, and, and, and they didn't know any Christian songs anyway. 
So they, they finally sing some Malaysian pop song. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, to my amazement, they stayed. I thought, I thought they'd walk out, but they didn't. They stayed. Uh, but when the service was over, they could not get out quick enough. And I, I had to sort of run down the road to sort of catch them and, and apologize to them and uh, try to sort of say, we, we're not, we don't always persecute our visitors. But... Um, <laughs> But, but, and of course, some Kenyans love it, but it has a bad side effect. That you don't go to church if you don't want to be fussed over. And one of the results is we do not reach in Kenya, most churches, including Crisco, I'm sorry to say, most churches do not reach many Muslims. I mean, some Muslim guy comes to church, he's going to be almost hounded with greetings and love. But he's going to be so embarrassed, he'll never come again. So Hindus don't come, Muslims don't come, Somalis don't come. And, and they almost can't come because, because they'll be so greeted that, that they're, too, they're too fussed over. Nobody can sneak in and just listen. And I remember some years ago, in, uh, in, uh, these, these are Nairobi stories, but I remember some years ago when Reinar Bonke came to uh, Kenya. He's a man I admire, I like him a lot. But um, he held a big crusade in, in Uhuru Park, Central Park, and it's on a big steep hill with a road at the top. And I noticed at that time, it became very famous. The president came to it, Daniel Arant Moy, at that time. And uh, he, liked, he's a, he was a Christian man. He liked it. He gave a presidential decree that it should be on television. So the whole nation was listening to Reinhard Bonnke on TV every day. And uh, everybody was listening to the gospel. But I noticed at that time that you get these Muslims and Hindus that would drive to the top of the hill wind down their window and just sit there listening, but not get out of the car. And I knew exactly what they were doing. It was a chance for them to hear the gospel without sitting in the congregation. Because there was a road there, you could drive to the top of the hill, wind your window down and listen and find out what these Christians are preaching and saying. But you see, why couldn't they normally do it? Because they can't come in without being fussed over. And everybody gets to know my, my Muslim uh, wife went to church this Sunday and you, and you start persecuting your wife. Uh, because she's, she, she's uh, departing from the faith and going to the infidels. They, they can't get a chance to hear the gospel because we persecute visitors. Um, but on that occasion, because there was an easy way of doing it and pretending you were just sitting in the park on a Saturday afternoon, they were actually coming and listening to the gospel at that time. So um, remember that we are not only, we're not only ch- on Sunday, we're not only church, we're also public meeting. And we are wanting people to come. And less and less in modern Britain do people come in. But um, we've got to ask some questions about that, I believe, and go to where the people are. Maybe, some, maybe sometimes Sunday is not the right place to meet. I, I was in Sydney a few months ago, and I was in the centre of town in Sydney on, on one midweek day, and the place was packed. I mean, business, the business centre in Sydney. You can hardly get along the street. There's so many people there. The whole place is just packed with business people. And there, in the middle of this business district, in the centre of Sydney, there's this massive, huge, Gothic, Anglican-type church, which will hold hundreds. But that's locked and, and clo- totally closed. Nobody goes, goes in there. That's locked. It's not Sunday. So there's milling crowds outside an empty building, on Sunday, the streets will be empty and the church will be open. This needs some rethinking. How comes our church is closed when all the people are there and open when the people are not there? And I think in many parts of the world, and I'm not quite sure how it works in, in uh, England, 
so much, but in many parts of the world, the first thing we have to do is to ask, where is the place where everybody is to be found? Let's put our central meetings there. But whatever day it is, whatever place it is, let's put it where the people are. And one reason why our fellowship in Crisco has been quite successful is not because of how brilliant we all are, it's just because we are there when the people are there. Everybody comes, I I don't know what the number is, but I should think something like 500,000 people come into central Nairobi every day to work in government offices and all go back home again at night. They're poor people, they have no money. What do you do at lunchtime? You can't go home, the place is, is densely packed. Well, you open the biggest hall you can find, have a prayer meeting, and people will come. Be there, the, the thousand will be there. They can't go anywhere else. What, what, what do you do at lunchtime when, when you've got no money anyway, uh, and you're stuck in town, you, you may as well go, go to church. There's nothing else to do. And, uh, and I remember trying to persuade people in, in Lusaka. I said to my friend Joe Imakando, start a lunchtime prayer meeting on Cairo Road, the very c- central road in uh, Lusaka. It took me a year or so to persuade him. One day he did it. Immediately it was packed, because Cairo Road's just packed with people. <coughs> <coughs> so, in each area we surely go to where the people are, and so on. And we have to begin to preach evangelistically. Now what is preaching evangelistically? Well, it's, it's just the same old, old gospel. It's, it's, it's not a, there's not much of a different message, a little bit of a different message, in that we leave certain things out. We don't talk about church government or predestination or, or, or the uh, or things which are not really relevant to unsaved people. We don't do that when we're preaching evangelistically. It has a slightly narrower message, but only slightly. Roughly speaking, the evangelistic message is just the gospel. The, the, the plain old scripture of the Bible is, is there. And evangelistic preaching is, is just, as it were, slanting it, especially for the unsaved. Evangelistic preaching should be as a, of as much interest to saved people as it is to unsaved people. Um, if you're always preaching just surrender to God, well, people get bored with that. If, you, if, you, if, you, if that's all that evangelism is, eventually you think, oh, that's for the unsaved. You don't go anymore because it's the same old uh, message. But if, but if uh, you're expounding scripture, just slightly angling it for the unsaved, the... The, the people of God love it as much as, as much as it relates to the unsaved. Ordinary people, ordinary Christian people love it. And uh, I, I'm finding it's difficult to put into words, but we must, we must uh, take our gospel and slant it in a way that really meets the needs of the unsaved. I, I'm trying to think of how to explain this to you. I remember a guy who didn't like my preaching. I was in Nairobi once and I a quote-quote friend of mine, sort of friend, uh, took me out for lunch, and he wanted to complain about my preaching. He didn't like my preaching very much. And he took me out for lunch and gave me lunch, but then he, had, he said, well, now I want to say something to you. He had, he had a criticism. He said, the trouble with you, Michael Eaton, I've always enjoyed this, I'm enjoying myself at the moment. He said, the trouble with you, Michael Eaton, is you're always dragging in the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> You know, to him, the fact that every sort of week somehow I found a way of, of addressing it to uh, the unsaved, to him, he didn't like it. He, he wanted me always to drag in the law. He was a highly moral sort of guy that wanted to be in politics and so on. He wanted me always to be moralizing the nation. And so this was his criticism. Trouble with you is you're always dragging in the gospel. To me, that was the biggest compliment he ever gave me. I'm, st- I'm still rejoicing in it 20 years later. But... Um, but that's right. You're always bringing in the gospel. You, and somehow you... you, you Make it relevant to the unsaved. (coughs) (coughs) 
There are certain models of it. So the, the people who do this the best, I would say, are, are Spurgeon. Read, read the sermons of Spurgeon, 62 volumes, thousands of them there for you to read. And you can get them all on CD. Read, read the sermons of Spurgeon. You'll find, although he's building up the people of God, every single Sunday, somewhere, he'll slant it in a way that there's something there for people to be saved. He'll, he'll say something. And it's a difficult thing for me to put into words, but um, Spurgeon is the great model. The other person I would say is a great model is, is try Dr. Lloyd-Jones' six volumes on Acts 1 to 8. The last series Lloyd-Jones ever took at Westminster Chapel. He never did it in his early days, but in his last few years he decided to go through the book of Acts on Sunday evenings preaching evangelistically, especially with his eye on the unsaved. And um, and those, those sermons are now published. He went on for several years until he retired in the middle of chapter 8. But um, those sermons are, are, in, are in print. You can read them. And uh, you'll, you'll find that what he does is he, he takes up sort of modern problems. And uh, it's, it's very sort of modern and uh, related to the modern world. But then he'll take some scripture and he will apply it to the unsaved. And it's, in, it's, it's as much of interest to the, to the saved as well as the unsaved. And uh, I, I sometimes do something like this. I'll sometimes be somewhere and I'll say, well, tonight I'm, I'm going to preach. I'll have to do it in an evening. Uh, tonight I'm going to preach as if there's not one single person here saved tonight. If you're saved, don't be offended, but uh, I'm going to preach as if not a single person is saved here. I remember doing it not long ago in Cape Town, in, uh, in uh, quite near the university, in the NFI congregation next door to the uh, university in Cape Town. And um, a lot of students there. And my text was Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, no God. Not there is no God. There's no word there is in Hebrew. Just uh, no God. I don't want God. The fool has said in his heart, no God. Well, I said, I'm going to preach as if nobody here tonight is saved. And the first thing I want to tell you is, if you are saying no God, you are a fool. Here it is in the scripture, the fool has said no God. And if you're here tonight and you don't really want God in your life, you're really saying no God, the first thing I want to tell you is you are a fool. But then the second thing is I can tell you why you're a fool. It's because your heart is wrong. The fool has said in his heart no God. And there's something wrong with your heart. The Bible's analysis of the human race is not that we're not clever enough. You're, obviously, you're clever. You're here at the university. You're, you're clever, all right. But is your heart right? The fool's got, this, this man is a fool. The reason why he's a fool is saying he's no God, but it's his heart making him do it. And out of the heart comes everything in life. You are what you are, not because of your mind or your, or your social background or university. You are what you are because of your heart. And then I, then I went on, it's your heart does this, and your heart does this. And I, I went on trying to show how the heart leads us into sin. There was a young guy there who was a drug addict. And he'd been brought, he was under, he was under sort of medication, he was under therapy, trying to get himself off of drugs. And uh, he's, he was there with his mum, his mum had brought him along. And I said, it's your heart that makes you addicted. It's your heart that makes you stop doing something. You can't get out of it. Your heart's fallen. You get addicted to things. You can see what you're doing is stupid, but even while you see what you're doing is, is, is stupid, you're still doing it. Why? Because it's not your intelligence ruling you. It's your heart. 
And as I was preaching, the boy grabbed hold of his, uh, his mum's arm and said, Mum, that, that's it. This is, this is what happens to me. You know, I can see it. I don't want to be doing this, but I, but I can see how stupid I am. And he's sort of agreeing with me and shaking his, his mum's arm while, while I'm saying, it's because you have got a wrong heart that you, you can't get out of these things you're in. And I went on that way for half an hour. And then I said, the remedy is you can get a new heart. The gospel message is God will give you a new heart. Now, that's what I mean by angling something. See, it's just Psalm 14. You could preach it anyway, but you angle this in a way that is, as it were, directly uh, bearing upon the unsafe. You bring in the cross. Don't, don't preach evangelistically without bringing in the cross. The reason why God can give you a new heart is because Jesus paid the price for it upon the cross and, uh, and so on. That's what I call evangelistic preaching. It's, it's ordinary preaching, but you angle it. You, you skew it a little bit um, in order to, to bring it bearing upon the unsafe. And you pick up particular things that are going on. Uh, read, read Dr. Lloyd-Jones' um, sermons. and he, he was very gifted at that. He, he, preached, he preached like this way every single Sunday. Someone came to him once in the middle of a Billy Graham crusade and said, why is it that, that, that you're not supporting the crusade? When, when will you hold a crusade in your church? That's, that's a real finny type question. You, you have these periodic days when you hold a crusade. When will you hold a crusade in your church? Dr. Lloyd-Jones replied, I hold a crusade in my church every Sunday evening. Which he did every Sunday evening. He would be passionately treating as though not one single person there was saved and, and, and winning, seeking people to the Lord. And, uh, but they were very varied, and uh, that's why I'm recommending Acts 1 to 6, 1 to 8 in six volumes. You'll find they're very varied. I can remember once someone said to him that Christians were narrow. He said, you Christians, you're so narrow. And I can remember some, he used to get a bit irritated sometimes when these pagans said things like that. He used to annoy him, and he would go, he'd go to the pulpit all fired up to deal with it. And uh, someone said, you Christians are so narrow. Next Sunday he preached on... Uh, I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. He said, the Christians are not narrow. They're put into a large place. And he began to sort of deal with narrowness. You think you're narrow. Well, when you, when you marry one wife, you, you, you leave all other women, but then you get to know one more than you ever know the other. When you're a specialist, you're some brilliant concert pianist at the Royal Albert Hall. Are you narrow because you're specializing? We, we, we are narrow because we found the answer. When you find the answer, you don't need anything else. And, and, and in any way, when you do find salvation, he sets you in a large place. And he begins to describe, it's large for your mind, it's large for your feelings, large for your will. You see, what's getting him going is that pagan remark, the Christians are narrow. You take up something that pagans are saying and you deal with it, you expound the scriptures that relates to it. And uh, this, this is, this is uh, defense, it's sort of apologetics a bit, it's defending the faith in, in the light of people's obstacles. Um... I'm thinking at the moment, I'm preaching at Westminster Chapel in August for a month, and I'm thinking already what I'm going to be thinking there. I think I'm going to deal with history. Have you ever noticed how the, the whole world at the moment is confused between the difference between fact and, and, and history? You have these sort of uh, uh, Da Vinci Code novels as if they're factual. You get history books written as if they're fiction. It's a total confusion between fact and fiction. And in I'm thinking I'll preach on, on history and uh, the way in which if you are not a Christian, you're going to have to twist history. 
You're going to have to pretend these things didn't really happen. And, and, and you, you take some modern thing that's going on and you deal with it. You deal with it by expounding scripture. You don't just uh, use intellectual cleverness. You expound the relevance of scripture. I, uh, and the passage I'm thinking of is Galatians 1. I, I didn't get my message from Jerusalem. I got this as a revelation from God. And I even went, never even went near Jerusalem. I was a persecutor. You'll know about it. God stepped into my life. So these, these facts of history that Paul is an apostle that God laid hold of and gave him revelations. He's, he's a sheer history. You don't get a history of the Da Vinci Code. That's just fiction. Don't, don't confuse fact and fiction. Why do, why do people have to go to all these modern so-called Gnostic Gospels? Because they won't fact, face the real Gospels of what really happens. Well, I don't know whether I preach those ways. Maybe I'll, but I'm thinking about it. But, but you see, it, does, it will zero in on something that people are currently saying. Everything's, every, there's a great confusion between fact and fiction at the moment. You take what's going on in the modern world and you find the passages of Scripture that relate to those things and you expound those passages on their bearing of what's going on in a few points. And uh, if you do that week by week by week, it's, it's not boring. It's, it's, not, it's not John 3.16 every week or, or surrender to God every week. It's expounding the whole gospel in its bearing upon the unsaved. But it, it ends with an appeal for repentance and faith. It doesn't end just uh, with teaching or doctrine. It ends with a call, put your faith in Jesus. He'll show you it's a large place. These, that, that sermon of Dr. Lloyd-Jones, Psalm 118, I called upon the Lord in distress. You don't really know what you believe until you're in trouble. When you're in trouble, with, with, all, that you, with all that you've been believing, will it help you when you're in bad trouble? This man says, I called upon... It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. What will you do when you're in trouble? Where will you turn when you're dying? You'll be in a deathbed in a few years' time. What will you do when you're in trouble? Will you want the narrowness of some little philosophy? In any case, the the unsafe life gets narrower and narrower. You get more and more bonded. It gets narrower and narrower. Finally, I remember Dr. Lloyd-Jones saying, finally, you're on the narrowness of a deathbed. And if only you put your faith in Jesus, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The, the, the path of the righteous shines more and more until the glorious day. One, one day seems to be the broad way, but it gets narrower and narrower. The other way seems to be the narrow way, but it gets broader and broader and broader. One day it ends up in the ultimate narrowness of going into eternity and not knowing where you're going. One, oh, it becomes a broad way. The Lord answers you in distress and sets you in a large place. This is what I call evangelistic preaching. And the people of God profit from it. They enjoy it. And there are many other reasons why you should do it. One is your children get saved. Don't preach evangelistically, you'll lose your children. We're bringing you up as Christians. You've got to bring people up as Christians until they are Christians. Somehow your children have to get their questions answered. When they're getting 12, 13, 14, 15... They start asking all sorts of questions. You know, do, do I really believe all this? this? Is what my parents said, but it's not what I hear at school. Do I really believe all this? Is my parents right, or is my evolutionary teacher at school is he right? And my, my headmaster, nice guy, he's a bit pagan. Maybe, maybe he's got a better life than my parents. And, and they want answers. At that point, you better give them answers. And you won't give them answers by telling them to surrender to God every day, every week. You give them answers by expounding the relevance and the truths in a big, broad way. Um, that's evangelistic preaching. You don't address the will directly. You go through the truth. You go through the exposition of Scripture. And you preach via the mind. And you address the conscience. Paul, Paul will say, addressing every man's conscience. 
in the fear of God. You just asked Finney in, in the final analysis. What you must not do is you surely must not do anything that gives the impression that walking forward is getting saved, which is what many evangelists do. They say, now respond tonight, come to Jesus tonight. I want you to get up out of your seat. You know, you know the uh, Billy Graham style. It goes back to Charles Finney. Well, some of these men are good men. Billy Graham's a great man. I, I respect him. D.L. Moody, Louis Palau. These are great guys. I don't despise them. Uh, I admire them. But, uh, but good people can make mistakes. Something's not right just because a good man's doing it. Uh, and we have, we're allowed to think. We're allowed to evaluate. And if good people make a mistake, it's more dangerous when a bad person makes a mistake. When some wicked guy does something wrong, we can all see he's wicked. You're in real trouble when it's a good person who makes a mistake. Someone who's sincere, genuine, you admire him, spiritually minded, dedicated to God. Then he makes some little mistake. Those are the things which destroy churches, when some good person leads you astray. And I think that's where we are in modern evangelism. Charles Finney was basically a good man. I'm not a attacking his character or his godliness. He was very sincere. But I think he made some mistakes, and those mistakes have been very disastrous. So when you're coming towards the end, well, what you mustn't do is give the impression that you, you do something, and that gets you to be saved. Walk forward and receive Jesus tonight and say these words, and you're, you're saved now. The difficulty with that is that if a person's not truly being... Uh, wrought upon by the Holy Spirit. If a person's not really under conviction, he's not being led by the Spirit in this way, but he, he obeys you, he does what you're telling him as the preacher, what he's really doing is he's really saying, oh, yeah, I'll try it. You know, he's saying, come forward, well, you know, I'll come forward, I'll, I'll, I'll say the prayer, and, uh, and he's experimenting. Maybe my life will never be the same. And of course, people can be truly saved that way. I'm not, I'm not questioning that. But uh, the great danger is that people are, are really following your instructions. And so if they don't find themselves to be very different, they probably won't, even tomorrow morning. They'll say, oh, well, nothing seems to have happened to me. I don't even go to church the next Sunday. And if you try and reach them, they'll, 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 say, they'll say, no, I tried it. Nothing special happened. I, I did it once. Uh, I did what the preacher told me to do. And this area where Finney ministered, and where these... Uh, revivals, so-called revivals were held. And actually, I think revival was subsiding and a kind of mass movement was taking over. But this, move, this area where Finney ministered so much, it became known as the burnt-over district. The district where you couldn't set anything on fire because it all been burnt already. The, the burnt-over district. In other words, that area became the hardest area in America to reach. And New York's still quite a hard place, even to this day. It became an area, you, you go somewhere like a uh, Connecticut and these, these areas where the Puritans were, where Finney ministers so much, they are the hardest areas to reach. I, I know no area more hard than some of these New England states in America. And uh, they became known, even in the 19th century, they became known as the burnt-over district, the district where you go there, people say, oh no, we've had all that stuff with Finney, you know, it, it didn't really work. It, they become the hardest people to reach uh, because they feel, well, you know, we've tried it, we've had all that. Um, so whatever you do, don't give the impression that actually walking forward is the thing that saves you. I don't know that you have to do anything at all. I, um, sometimes you do, and I'll tell you how I do it in a moment. But uh, I don't know that you have to do anything when you're really preaching the gospel and people are being saved, they're being saved whether you have a, a final whatever it is or not. 
And uh, sometimes when you're a preacher, you get nice surprises. I remember talking to some Indian guy once, and I said to him, when were you saved? I don't know how you got saved. Tell me, tell me your story. And to my surprise, I was totally surprised, he said, oh, I got saved through you. I said, oh, I, I, I didn't know that. When was that? And he said, oh, it was the year of the earthquake. There, were, there was a time in India some years back, what, sort of 10, 15 years ago now, when there was an earthquake. And I scrapped all my sermons and preached on nothing but earthquakes. When something happens, you, you, chat, you, you adjust yourself to what's happening. Someone dies or there's an earthquake or there's a, a volcano going off on, in Iceland. You, you, you relate to it. Not that you're trying to be sort of topical or, or, or just uh, in the fashion, but you, you relate to what people are thinking about. And you, you answer the questions they might have. How, how, come, how come there's an earthquake in, in Iceland? And they've got that question. And, uh, and so on. And for, for a few days, I preached everywhere on there should be earthquakes in diverse places. The Philippian jailer got saved in an earthquake. I preached in every earthquake passage I could think of, uh, evangelistically. And every year, for, for about seven years, every year I went back, someone would say to me, oh, I got saved during the earthquake. And on this particular occasion, the pastor said, oh yeah, I got saved for the earthquake. I got saved. And I said, oh, when was that? Oh, during the earthquake year. But um, you'll find, you go back and you find someone that was saved and you had no idea they were saved. And it, or maybe it's some, some, some young guy and you were preaching there and they were just a, a little boy of 10 or 12, but they were listening. And 12 or 15 years later, they say, you know, do you remember that time when you came here and, you, you pre-? and they'll tell you what your sermon was? And they were saved on that day. You don't even know about it. But where the Spirit is working, people do get saved. It doesn't matter if you know exactly what's going on. You may, not, you may never find out, uh, or you may find out a few years later. Um, if something is real, well, then it's real. That's all there is to it. But then you may want to make it a bit more uh, definite, and I, I sometimes do something like this. I just say, well, do, do you want to uh, be saved tonight? I'll, let me tell you how to pray. Let me help you in praying. Come to the Lord now. Just come and talk to the Lord now. Lord Jesus Christ. Say, say that to the Lord. Say, say, Lord Jesus Christ, I know I need you. I need to hear this message tonight. I, I'm trusting in you. and I, I want to serve you all my days. Amen. And then I'll say, if you prayed that prayer tonight, come and share it with us. I won't give the impression that walking forward is saving anybody. I say, come, come and tell us or... Or get up out of your seat and, and walk forward and we'll, we want to pray for you and give you something before you go away. I'll make a little bit of an evangelistic appeal. But it's very low-key. I will not do anything that even to the slightest gives the impression that doing the thing that they're doing is what saves them. Um, I don't, don't think we should do that. We do damage. But if someone has prayed and they are sort of seeking the Lord, we can possibly help them a bit more if they'll come and share to us. So, so, we, so we might say, come forward and just share that God's spoken to you tonight, and we, we want to spend five minutes with you, give you a leaflet. You're not implying that they're saved, you're, not, you're implying that they're seeking salvation, and you can help them a bit. You don't say, because you prayed that prayer tonight, you're saved. You mustn't do that, because it may not be true, and then you're doing them more harm than good. But you can invite them to come seeking to know a bit more or to get some personal help. I have no objection to that. Um, but don't use this finny method where you pressurize people. And, and certainly don't trick people. I, I was preaching in Cape Town some time ago at a certain church, and uh, I was preaching on Romans. And I wasn't especially trying to be evangelistic. I was just uh, expounding Romans. 
But one night there was a tremendous sense of power. There was a tremendous sense that the Lord was there. People were, were sort of loving Romans and so on. There was a, an amazing sense of the Lord's presence. And I preached evangelistically, so I ended evangelistically and I ended in the way that I've just uh, said. Um, but there was a young guy there, he was leading the service, and as I, I, I closed it, I said, God bless you, and I sat down, or something like that. The young guy said, as I was walking to my seat, the young guy said to me, can I give an appeal? Can I, can I get him to walk forward? And I said, no, just tell them to come and share with us if God's spoken to them tonight. But this young guy couldn't take that. He, he, was, he was in the finny mold. For him, you know, you're not saved unless you walk forward. And he, he could not... Uh, take this uh, no sort of performance at the end. So he said, now, if, if you prayed that prayer, I want you to put your hand. He, pray, he prayed what I call the finny trick. It goes like this. If you, if you uh, were touched tonight, put your hand up. Uh, and you, but you're not gonna t- you don't tell them what you're going to do next. And they put their hand up. Now, those of you who have put your hand up, just, just stand up. Uh, you didn't tell them, you, you didn't let them know they were going to do that. Just stand up. Now, those of you who stand up, just walk forward. You step by step by step, pressurize them and force them to come forward. And then you do the little saying the prayer and they say, no, you're saved now. You actually give the impression that what they are doing is what's saving them, which is, which is a bad thing to do. But that particular night, uh, there was, it, it wasn't that kind of atmosphere. There was such a sense of conviction. It was a, a very powerful sense that, that God had uh, pierced people's hearts and the uh, there was a great conviction. So the guy who tried to sort of do it the Finney style was sort of clashing with me. We, we, we were using different methods. And he gets people to, to, to put their hand up. He says, now, now walk forward. But the people did not want to walk forward. The, the atmosphere was not that kind of atmosphere. It wasn't the atmosphere of marketing or, or buying some, some, good, some, some nice goods. It was an atmosphere of, of, of right where I am, they all spoken to me. They didn't especially want to walk forward. And the guy is, was a bit sort of irritated with them. No, no, no come on, no, no, walk forward. And he, he's really putting pressure, and, they, and they're refusing. Nobody ever would walk forward. So a battle takes place between him and, and these people standing, but, but he wants them to walk forward. He's, he's battling to get them to do something. But actually, the spirit that was there that night, the, the spirit of the small s, the sort of atmosphere of that night was, was not that kind of atmosphere. It was an atmosphere of deep conviction that the Lord was speaking. It wasn't an atmosphere of performing and doing things. It was, it was hearing God speak. And so there was this kind of battle. And he sat down bitterly disappointed. And I was upset because I felt he damaged what he was doing. I don't want people to be, as it were, disturbed. They're trying to think about what God's saying to them and coming to faith. I don't want people to be getting them doing things. It's, it's hindering, not helping. So I'm annoyed with him and he's annoyed with me. But... <laughs> So he sat down, disappointed. No, I really wanted to get people saved tonight, he said. The implication being they're not saved unless they do the, the walking forward. That's all finny again. It's, it's what we've inherited for 200 years. I suggest we, we sweep the whole, the whole thing out. Um, I, I've always been a bit against it, but the, the, the longer I live, the more against it I get to be. The more, the more I feel it does damage, it does harm. Let's get rid of it. And let's have the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, and trust the Holy Spirit, give people a chance to come and share with us if, if, if it's uh, easy to do, um, and expect God to work. As I say, I believe the, the great models of Spurgeon. Read, read, read a bit of Spurgeon. You don't have to follow him. Spurgeon's not a guy that you can copy very easily. He's inimitable. But um, 
So you don't try to copy him. He's too flowery and too 19th century. You can't copy him. But you will see how he, he makes everything evangelistic. You will see how, no matter what he's saying, he'll say, he'll say now, this is not for you unless you're saved. Even, even if you're doing something which is totally Christian, only relevant to Christians, you can still say, of course, none of this is relevant to you if you're not saved. That can still be your last sentence. You're missing all this unless you believe in Jesus. This love I've been talking about, this holiness, this, 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 it won't be for you unless you believe in, why don't you believe in Jesus tonight? Even your last few sentences can be evangelistically. That's what my, my friend calls dragging in the gospel. You, in the last few sentences, you still bring its bearing upon, upon the unsaved. Um, you preach that way, it's rich, it's detailed. You make your church, the, uh, your church is one permanent evangelistic crusade. Um, yeah, I don't mean you do every single Sunday service. I, I don't believe in that. I would say that preachers divide their preaching up into about three. About a third, I would think about a third of the time they're preaching something which is very central to the evangelistic message. If you read Dr. Lloyd-Jones on, on Acts, you'll find he's not expounding every single word. He's just going through picking out the bits that are specially relevant to the unsaved. He's not trying to give a, 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 every, a totally detailed exposition. He's just picking out the, the particular bits that deal with, uh, that, that, that can easily be made relevant to the unsafe. Um, you don't have to be a, a perfect expositor. <coughs> I would say about a third of the time you're, you're doing that. And then I would say about a third of the time you're helping Christians to rejoice. You're helping Christians to be strong, how to pray, how to live the godly life. You're dealing with what I would call Christian life preaching. And again, you don't have to expound every topic under the sun that you see in Scripture. You deal with things that are practical and relevant to, to Christian living, and especially to staying rejoicing in the Lord, seeing the treasures of everything God has done for you in your salvation. I, I would call that Christian life preaching, I would call that. And then somewhere else, you might do what I like to call the whole counsel of God, which is where you go through a bit of Scripture, dealing with every single thing you find there. And it will relate to all sorts of things, science and government and education and, and uh, think, subjects that maybe you wouldn't normally preach on. You might, be, you might be preaching there, and suddenly there's a passage about divorce. And you say, well, do I really want to preach on divorce? But it's what, it's what you're sort of going through. Or there's a bit about singing or, or music, or there's something uh, about the discipline of children. You think, well, 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 why should I be, do I especially need to preach on that? But there's something to be said for having somewhere in the life of a church, probably not Sunday, probably something midweek, but somewhere in the life of the church where you, you deal with every single thing that comes up just as you work through a section or a book of Scripture, taking your time, not being in a hurry, dealing with everything, the whole counsel of God. And you get some surprises in that. Sometimes you are doing that, and you think, oh, do I really want to speak on that? And uh, it's a subject which maybe you think which is a bit irrelevant, but it's there in Scripture. It's on your agenda. So just because it's there, you think, oh, no, I better, I better not skip over it. I'll deal with it. And, and then you're amazed. That all sorts of people come, uh, and, and they've, got, they've got a lot out of it, just because it's a bit different. Think, Pastor, you know, you don't even know my, my marriage is in such trouble, but actually what you said tonight has really rescued me. And, and you've somehow touched upon something where the very unusualness of it, because you're going through everything, the very fact that you're doing something which you don't very often, or that particular topic, that particular verse, has, has touched them at some point. And uh, you'd be amazed how God blesses us when we do that. So I would divide preach the content of preaching in that sort of way. And then I'd like to say something 
Again, I'm still feeling my way as I go, but I'd like to say something on the kind of practical lifestyle of how a preacher does this. You may say to me, well, I'm not a preacher. I'm just an ordinary Christian. It's not my ministry to be a preacher. I don't need to know about the preacher's lifestyle. Well, yeah, maybe, but, um, but think about this. The only difference between a preacher and any other Christian is he's a little bit further ahead. There's no other difference, is there? I mean, a preacher is not some super saint in a totally different category. He's just flesh and blood like everybody else. What he's meant to be doing is no different from what we're meant to be doing. There's no kind of separate syllabus for the pastor. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says, now this bit's for the preachers. There's no separate syllabus. The only difference between a preacher or a pastor or anybody else is you expect him to be a little bit gifted, a little bit further ahead, but he's only doing what everybody else does. We're all meant to read our Bible. The Bible's not addressed to pastors. Have you noticed that? When you read the, when you read the letters, it doesn't say to the, to the clergy or to the pastors at Corinth. It, never, it always says to the saints. The saints are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. They might be there. It's all right, they can, they can read it too. But it's not to them. It's to the saints with the bishops and deacons. To, to the, the believers. To the saints and faithful brothers at Colossae. To the church of the Thessalonians in God. It's never addressed to <coughs> the elders or the leaders. It's addressed to the people. The whole Bible is addressed to the whole people of God. So the only difference between a pastor or an elder or anything like that is that he's, he's a bit gifted that way. He, he's got a burden for people. He gets, he's a bit further ahead. He's moving a bit faster. He's got a kind of gifting along those lines. But there's, there's no separate agenda for him. And what the pastor's meant to be doing is really no different from what the ordinary people have got to be doing. He's meant to be studying his Bible. You're meant to be studying your Bible. He might do it a bit more. He might be helping you to do it. He might be a few stages ahead of you, but it's not really different. We're all meant to be reading our Bible. The Bible's addressed to everybody. So, uh, we can all, uh, can I put it like this? We can all be little pastors, but some people have to be big pastors, but, but it's basically all the same. Um, so, what I'm about to say, it really would, would be good advice for any Christian anywhere, just that the pastor does it more than most. Or I like to put it like this, what makes a shepherd a shepherd is he sees the wolf before anybody else sees the wolf. You know, the sheep, they're there and the wolves are coming. Well, those sheep better, better discover that there were wolves around. But the, the shepherd is a person who sees the wolf first. He's a bit ahead. That's the only, that's the only thing the only thing that makes a shepherd a shepherd is he's a little bit ahead. He sees things a little bit before others see it. But actually, the central content of the Christian life is no different. And we're not in a different realm, just a slightly different gift. And uh, maybe we're meant to be one or two steps ahead of other people. But otherwise, there's no difference between a pastor, a preacher, and anybody else. So what kind of a system should we use? Well, I would say that pastors have to decide what kind of pastor they are. There are different kinds of pastors. We're not all the same. We're all different. We even have different bodies. Even our, even our daily routine has a lot to do with how we're made physically. Some people, when they wake up in the morning, they, they, they're, they're raring to go. They're sort of a, they want all them to get moving, and they, they can hardly bear sitting at the desk. They, they want to be active. You can't, you can't get them to sit down. Other people, other, others, like me, we wake up very slowly. We can sit, we can sit down for a whole hour, and... Uh, it's nothing to sit at a desk because we're not sort of itching to get moving. We're slow movers. 
Some people, some people can just work easily and they're not sort of struggling physically. Others, they're sort of restless and they've got slow circulation. They want, they want to sort of get out and get, get moving. We're made differently physically. And so don't do something which is the opposite of the way in which you're made. Don't try and sit at a desk all morning if you're one of these guys who are, you, you, you're irritated until you get moving. And equally, if you're the kind of person who's very slow moving, well, you were just born to be sitting at a desk for your first couple of hours. Uh, people are made in different ways. Now, don't try and be other than what you are physically. And uh, decide what kind of pastor you are. Are you going to be some kind of teacher and uh, doing a lot of Bible study? Are, are you a kind of... Uh, Organizer, where you're always out organizing other churches and giving people ideas. Uh, what, what kind? Are you a people person? You just love, love seeing people, people, people all the time. You really love to be just visiting people. What kind of person are you? You structure your ministry around the kind of ministry you've got. There's no, there's no rule about this. There's no standardized pastor. Each, every pastor is a bit different. Every preacher is a bit different. So know yourself. Know what your calling is know yourself even physically, what, what kind of structure of your day. But then surely it's, it's wisdom to give the best part of your day to the most important part of your work. If, if you have to do a lot of Bible study and your best part of your day are the mornings, well then give your mornings to your Bible study. If, if you're the kind of guy that uh, loves visiting in the evenings, well, give your evenings to visiting people, whatever it is. Give the part of the day where you are at your best to the bit of your work, which is your main calling and your main gift. Just, just be sensible and practical in, as it were, shaping your day. Don't let others dictate to you. Um, very often people have got a certain picture of a kind of model pastor. But, you know, no two pastors are the same anyway. I've known many pastors and apostles and prophets and all these people. I don't know any two of them who are alike. Each one is totally different from all the others. Each one of us has got our own kind of shape or structure. So you, you shape your day. And the, the, if the exposition of Scripture is coming into your ministry, which I'm hoping it will, if somewhere there's a lot of um, preaching of the Word of God in your ministry, as I hope there is, well then somewhere you've got to find some time where you really are giving yourself to Scripture. And uh, I, it's a big subject, but uh, I'm just trying to say a few things that might help you a bit. But one thing I think will, will help you in your thinking is make a sharp distinction between what technically is called exposition, uh, what, so, sorry, what is technically called exegesis, and what we call exposition. There's a, there's a difference between what the theologians call exegesis, which means basic interpretation. There's a difference between what I think basically means and its significance. But when you read a passage, um, just, I've just let my Bible fall open, it's at Romans 10. When you read Romans 10, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that they might be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, you'll be reading that and you'll be asking, what does it mean? Brothers, does that only mean men or does it mean brothers and sisters? Well, the Greek word means anybody. You could translate brothers and sisters. My heart's desire and prayer for God is them. Who's the them? It's Jews. That they might be saved. I bear the witness. They have a, they have a zeal for God. Yeah, these Jews are going around everywhere passionately crusading for their Judaism. 
but it's not according to knowledge. They don't, they don't know what they ought to know. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God. I'm, tra- I'm translating the Greek literally. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God. What does that mean? Does it mean they don't know how righteous God is? I mean, that's one thing it does mean. Or does it mean they don't know that God can give them a gift of right? What is it, what's, what's its basic meaning? You go through your Bible just trying to understand it sentence by sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, book by book. That's what I call your basic interpretation. But you don't preach that. You don't go into your pulpit Sunday morning saying this verse means this and this verse means this and this verse means this and this verse means this. No, you turn it into exposition. And there's a difference between basic interpretation of exegesis and exposition. Exposition is bringing out its significance. Some people have a desire for so religious, but they don't know God. Look, these people here, they had a zeal for God, but they don't know the Lord. It might be true of you. You have a, you're very enthusiastic. You come to church every Sunday. You, you say your prayers. You read your Bible. But you don't know God. You've not discovered how to get saved. But you see the difference between my basic interpretation and my expounding it. Can you see the difference? In the second part of what I've just done, I'm trying to bring out the significance of it, the message of it. And the preacher has to learn how to move from exegesis to exposition. He has to learn how to move from from its basic meaning to its significance. You don't preach on a Sunday morning just what the text means. You preach on a Sunday morning what the text means for you. Its significance, its doctrine, its teaching, its implications. And you draw it out. And, And this is the most important, practically, this is about the most important thing I'm saying. When you're doing your, your work and your study, put it into points. Hey, point number one, you can be religious but not being saved. Point number two, your problem is you don't know how righteous God is. Point number three, you might be very zealous while you're doing it. You, you put it in points. Those points will one day, maybe next Sunday, maybe a year's time. One day, those points will be the points of your message. You'll you're be in a situation where people are very religious but they don't know God. And you'll say, no, I, I need that, that, that thing I worked on, on Romans 10, I need that. You go back to your notes, and there is it. Your sermon's already prepared. It's already there. Point one, point two, point three. You've already done your work. He who would prepare little must prepare much. You've already done the work. When it comes to the time, the work's already been done. And you learn how to expound in that way. And you pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, Paul said, our word came to you not in word only. I wasn't just giving you lectures and uh, making nice, interesting points. Our word came to you not in word only, says 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, but it came, it came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It wasn't just uh, giving you a few nice, interesting uh, ideas in word. It came with power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction or with much assurance. And you may want to ask the question, whose was the assurance? And Paul says, our word came with much assurance. Does it mean that he was very assured that what he was saying was from God? He was full of the, the a conviction that he's doing what's right. He's assured, he's assured about what he's doing. Or does it mean that they have much assurance? So that as he's preaching, they are absolutely sure that they're hitting from God. Whose is the assurance? And I answer, Everybody. When God is moving, everybody knows that God is there. The preacher knows that what he's saying is right. He knows that God is saying something. He feels the very presence of God. He knows that there's a kind of anointing there that's not from him. 
But not only does he know it, the people know it as well. They all know, no, this is God is speaking to us today. Everybody feels the presence of God. There's a conviction there. And no, no amount of preparation in your study will do that. No, no reading of books will, that, will bring that down. That requires your seeking God himself. That, that anointing has to come from the Holy Spirit. And you can be at your worst, and the Holy Spirit is there. You can be at your best, and the Holy Spirit's not there. What really matters is not, not how, how well you are. You can be sick. You can be losing your voice. You, you, can, you, can, you can not have had time to study. You can, you can walk into a pulpit where you've hardly had time to even think, and, and you're tired, and you're weary. You don't even know how you're going to preach. And suddenly, God is there. You preach the best sermon you've ever preached in your life. Next Sunday, you've worked hard, you're prepared, you're ready, you've got your notes all ready, you're going to preach a power, and somehow the whole thing is flat. The difference is, last week you were trusting in God. This week you're trusting in how well you've prepared yourself. No matter how well you've prepared yourself, don't trust in your preparation. Trust in God. Look for God to move. Sometimes when you're at your worst, you're at your best. Dr. Lloyd-Jones has a saying, which I like, a good preacher is sometimes a bad preacher. What he means by that, you see, is that if you really are trusting in God, there's a kind of variation in how much the Lord blesses you. Sometimes you really are wanting to, to, to God to move and the Lord's not there very much that Sunday and you think, oh, I didn't do too well this morning. It's because you're trusting in God. A person who's not trusting in God, he's, he's always standing, he's always steady. There's a certain amount of preparation, gives you a good lecture, very interesting, you go away, yeah, yeah, that was nice, that was interesting, you say. But, but it's steady because, because there's no flexibility in, in the way in which he's made. When you're trusting in God, there's variety there. One day you're stronger than another. One day when you're at your worst, you preach with great power. One day when you think you're going to have great power, the Lord says, no, I'm going to teach you that you, you need me. <laughs> There's a variation. A good preacher is sometimes a bad preacher. It's true. And you're trusting in God. Sometimes the Lord says, no, I just want to teach you something, and he, and he withholds the blessing. You're not so powerful that day. And you go to the Lord and say, Lord, you, know, you weren't with me today. And you, you, next Sunday, you're on your knees a bit more, and you're pleading for mercy, pleading for the Lord to be with you. And the Lord comes back. There's, there's variety, because there's always variety in the realm of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is sovereign. He comes and goes and does things as he wills. A good preacher is sometimes a bad preacher when he's trusting in the Holy Spirit. When, you, when you're just uh, trusting in yourself, you're on a certain level all the time. So you prepare your message, you prepare yourself, pray for the power of the Spirit, and you preach. And we're varied. Some people, we all have different gifts. Some people can think on their feet. Some people can't. Some people are listenable to some people, some people are not so listenable to. Keep your sentences short. Don't use complicated language. Luther used to say, when I preach, I have my eye on the servant girl. He would have, he would have the poorest of the poor in his congregation, and he would be making sure they can understand. Sometimes when you're preaching, one person inspires you. you, get, you get, you're preaching, and you can see someone really listening as though their whole life depends on it. You find yourself preaching to that one person. They're, they're putting something into you. Sometimes the power on a preacher is not coming from him. Sometimes the people are, as it were, giving him power. Or there's someone that's such a spirit of joy. Or there's someone listening as though their whole life depends upon it. And somehow they inspire you. They bring out the best in you. Sometimes it's not the power upon the preacher. It's the power upon the people. 
People are giving you something. You can preach a message in a certain congregation and then go somewhere else and preach exactly the same message. The first time it has such power, the second time it doesn't. And it's a lot to do with the people. When, when the people are really praying for you and they're warm-hearted and so on, there's a power there that's not coming from you, it's coming from the people. You go somewhere else and they're sort of cold and, and they're interested, but, but it's not, they're not really hungry for God. You don't have quite so much power. The greatest test you've got is whether you can really speak and see people saved. That's the test of how much God is with you. But you don't depend, it's not your cleverness or your degree or, or your knowledge, it's the anointing of the Holy Spirit he uses you as you are, but the real test is whether God is there. Can, can you say what Paul said? That we, did, we weren't just bringing words to you. There, there was power. There was the Holy, Holy Spirit. And there was much assurance. That's preaching. The rarity, there's not much of it around. The rarity, when you get it, it changes nations. It changes history. The whole, the whole world is different when one person is preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. They said of Jesus, this man, he's not like all the others. He's not like the scribes. This man preaches with authority and not as the scribes. Jesus was so different than this kind of style of preaching compared to the scribes. The scribes were clever. Rabbi so-and-so said this, Rabbi so-and-so said that. They They were clever, they were learned, they were scholarly. Jesus didn't quote anybody. He said, I say unto you, but there was a power there and everybody could feel it. That's what it means to be preaching in the power of the Spirit. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we ask you, as you've told us to ask you, that you will thrust forth laborers into the harvest field. Please, Lord, give us preachers. Give us preachers, people who fall from heaven, not people that we can train or create, but people that come from your hand, people that you've raised up, people that you've put through certain experiences in life to qualify them, people you've poured your spirit upon them. Raise up such people in our day. Have mercy upon this land of ours. Send us a new, a new, some new Wesleys, some new Whitfields, some new, some new Jonathan Edwards, some new John Bunyan, some new Latimers. Send us people in this, in this country who will take the nation by storm as happened many, many times before. And help us, Lord, not to put our trust in ourselves, our little campaigns and our pressures and our marketing. Lord, deliver us from putting trust in ourselves. Come and work by your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.